Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. This is Toby Miller and I'm in Cafe Kick in Exmouth Market with my friend Marisol Sandoval who is actually kind of, or was a moment ago, gritting her teeth at the prospect of this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sure it'll go just fine. Yeah, we'll be fine. (laughs) And we're here to celebrate and chat about, and in my case, learn a bit about your new book. So can you tell us what it's called and what it's about? Well, it has a very deceptive title, From Corporate to Social Media, which kind of tricks people into thinking it is about social media, which it is not. Um, well, the title just alludes to, alludes to actually some kind of critique of the way um, the term social media is commonly understood. Um, I, well, probably it's a kind of double critique. The first critique is that um, social media usually, usually just refers to online media. Okay, I'm sorry to put a bit more water than inside. No, it's okay. Are you sure? Yeah. So, yeah, well, uh, it's, it's mostly just uh, online media that are considered to be social media. And, yeah. Well, you can question that, saying that basically media are always there to connect people, to allow for interaction and, yeah. and, and exchange. So, aren't all media to some extent social? So this is reflected in the book uh, in the sense that I cover all kinds of media industries. So I have a very broad notion of the media sector, yeah. um, including uh, also not just those who produ- that, that produce content, but also on telecommunication software and hardware companies. Um, but the second um, critique of the common understanding of the term social media, that is probably the more substantial one, uh, is the one that actually, as we understand the social, and social media is quite a limited understanding of the term social and also a very depoliticized understanding of the term social. So it just refers to how the technology helps us to interact, basically, to collaborate, maybe. Um, But when you look at the meanings that the term social has had historically, you can see that it was a very contested term. Um, Well, Marx defined humans as social beings and he said, like, a really truly social order that is appropriate to these social beings. Uh, is opposed to private property, so it's like opposed to capitalism, and the idea of socialism also comes and has this time, kind of terminate. And then when you look on the other side, like people like Hayek, one of the economic forefathers of, of, of neoliberalism, um, he said that the social is one of the most dangerous terms in the political vocabulary, and we should just abandon the term social. Um, well, and today it seems to be everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. When you when you just when you type the term social in Google image search, then you just come up that then you find all the images of Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, and there is no kind of connotation left to this kind of political meaning of the term social. So, kind of what this book is about also is is kind of thinking, um, kind of reclaiming the social and thinking what is what, what would it actually mean to have social media, and also really truly social media, and also if you think about. Um, in this way about the social, social, so-called social media we have today, you see that they're actually corporate media, they're private media, they're controlled by private corporations, by their own private corporations, and in the end they exist to serve this kind of private interest, not the social interest of society. So that's 
some kind of, of, of contradiction there. So the book is not about social media, even though... Oh, it is about social You're media. You're trying to sell books to people who want media. books about social media in the conventional sense. <laughs> but I have to say, the title came in at the very end. It just made sense at the end. Sure. No, I'm... A couple of years ago, I was interested in seeing how socialism, socialism, was visualized. And so I did a Google search in the U.S., for socialism and then images, and it was almost all photographs of Barack Obama, or to give him his correct name, Barack Hussein Obama II, mm-hmm. posted by right-wing websites. Yeah, but it's quite telling what, what, what images come up. When yeah, it's really interesting, because of course the algorithm, at least allegedly, is about how commonly these things are sought yeah. or posted under yeah. that rubric. Yeah. So, you mentioned the idea of a truer, more authentic social media mm. than the current one we have. What would be an example of an inauthentic, not really social medium now? And what would be an example of what would be a really authentic social medium in your view? Hmm. Well, I mean, that's actually that's actually almost already the next step. So how do we go from what I've done in the book? And that's something I thought about just a little bit uh, in, 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 in the end. But I think an authentic social medium is a medium that is like operates in the benefit of society, yeah. as opposed to one that operates in the benefit of, of individuals. And what I've been looking at actually in the book is the the concept of corporate social responsibility. Yes. Because this concept basically suggests that um, again, actually, it's, it's another example how the term social has been integrated into this kind of business vocabulary. Yeah? So when you also look at the origins of the term corporate social responsibility, it's very early version. It was uh, considered as something, something um, well, problematic to some people, like like Milton Friedman and Hayek's companion. He said that social responsibility, the idea of corporate social responsibility, is a fundamentally subversive doctrine, it basically wants to subvert the way businesses operate, but yeah, well today every 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 multinational corporation has its corporate social responsibility report, so again, this is an example where you can see how this term became ever more integrated um, in, into this language, and also this, the, the, the change of, but for, for, for Heike Friedman it was quite clear that corporations are not there to operate in the, in the common interest, they are primarily operate in the private interest of their shareholders and then in a second instance through some kind of miraculous mechanism this will benefit society at large. But this discourse has become much more complicated today. Um, yeah, so in the book I look at different discourses of uh, corporate social responsibility, yeah. different ways of understanding the term. And let me give you an example and ask for your view. Let's think about Twitter and its use by citizen journalists to make news. That's often cited as a vanguardist but demotic notion of social media. Mm-hmm. What's your What's your take on that? Well, I think um, obviously it's, it's 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 difficult, and all like the platforms like Twitter or Facebook, they have been used and they are being used for for. Um, Purposes that are actually um, challenging the very form that these platforms are organized. So it's very difficult. But at the same time, um, well, 
also activists are increasingly kind of questioning how, how good it is to actually use these platforms because they have lots of, of potential disadvantages just if you think about all the data that is stored about each and every individual and especially if you are campaigning for any political purposes um, at some point the question comes up whether to, to, how, to what extent you want that to, to be the case and also it creates huge dependencies for these movements that rely on, on these platforms because yeah. as they are privately owned and controlled they could just easily withdraw um, and, and just exclude people, which is also happening. People are excluded from, from Facebook or from using um, these platforms. So it's, it's, it's a huge dependency on corporations. Right, right. Getting back to the book, you've mentioned some of the themes, including corporate social responsibility. Uh, could you tell us about some of the other things in the book? One that I'm re recalling is labour. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, so... Probably one main goal of the book is to kind of explain the political meaning of the term social and the second main goal, I think, uh, is also to kind of challenge this uh, assumption that the media industries are just like material and symbolic yeah. and that's also the reason why I did include um, companies and industries like hardware companies, software companies, telecommunication companies, companies like for example Apple um, and then also studied um, topics such as labor in the basically in the electronic supply chain to make this case that there is actually a huge environmental impact on people and, uh, on, on, and a material impact on people and on and on the planet. So yeah, Apple was one of the case studies, and I looked into at the time when I was writing this book, there was like all these debates going on about the, the suicides at Apple's supplier factories uh, at Foxconn. Um, in, yeah, uh, which is a Taiwanese company yeah. that is so-called subcontractor to yes. Apple, manufacturing many of its computer products in China in particular, but also the United States and other countries. And there were numerous suicides as well as worker protests that took place at its Chinese plants over the last four years now, I guess. Would it be? Yeah, so this was just... Um, I, I basically... I made use of, I mean, there are like great organizations like SACOM, Students and Scholars Against Corporate Misbehavior, based in Hong Kong, but there are also European initiatives, um, like there was this project, I think it ended now, but it was funded for eight years or so, it was called Make IT, Make It Fair, uh, and also they were collaborating with local NGOs and groups to monitor uh, working conditions in these supply factories, so they did undercover investigations, and they produced like actually quite a rich picture of, of how work um, in these factories actually look like, and how horrible working conditions actually are. Um, yeah. And very regimented, apart from anything else, aren't they? Mm. They have ex-army guys often yes. as foremen and so on. Yes, yes, so at all different levels. I mean, obviously the two, to the two main issues at the first look are this problem of extremely long working hours and extremely long pay, which also usually reinforce each other because they have such a low pay that they are forced to continuously work over time. Um, so that's a huge problem. And so even though Apple officially complies with the maximum working hours regulations, people still work voluntarily because they need to work over time because the wages are so low. But then there are like all other kinds of problems like this surveillance and monitoring and this very strict control of their behavior in every in every way. Yeah. Um, there is also these things about um, um, 
so-called like student labor interns that are like as part of their courses, they're studying some kind of vocational courses. They have to come and work in these factories for um, some months at lower pay than the other workers. And actually, what they're doing is just being workers, yeah. um, not interns, not, not not actually learning. Yeah. So they are like, uh, and also all all these things about. I mean. Um, very often it's migrant workers, young female migrant workers working in these factories that don't have any kind of social connections in, 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 in these parts, in these parts of the country yeah. where they're moving to and therefore are very vulnerable to, to this kind of abuse. Extremely isolated. Mm. And how does one theorize labor in these cases? Where would you position them in terms of the various ways we have of understanding what work is? Are they a proletariat? Uh, are they a reserve army of labor? Uh, what is an intern? Hmm. Yeah. How do you understand these things? Help us comprehend them. Oh, I'm not sure if, I, if I'm the right person to comprehend them. But, well, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's quite clear that there's like a huge, huge working class uh, in, in China developing, and they are also not just, not just uh, victims, they are also like struggling, and they are also. Um, uh, against these working conditions, and there is also like uh, more and more labor protests going on in China, which of course are extreme, extremely risky often for these people. But um, yeah, I think um, these 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 workers in these factories they clearly are like a, 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 a traditional working class that we could probably would say in, in compared to cultural work in countries like the UK um, is more difficult to theorize than. I yeah, yeah. And, and where would you like to see them positioned in a truly social media world? Well, I think, like, in a truly social... I mean, that would require a total reconfiguration of how technologies are produced today. I mean, also the, the, the kind of... Um, the question is, how can you create... Um, how can you create technologies in a way that is um, not as dangerous in terms of health and also not as um, consuming in all kinds of ways for the people that are producing these technologies. And I think one important step is the question like how, how much technology is, is produced at the moment that yeah. probably is, is by far exceeding what, what we would need. So that's probably yeah. the first first starting point. But I have to say, it's really, really hard to think about immediate alternatives of how to produce technology because they require such high-tech, expensive equipment. So that is almost impossible to just say, I'm not going to produce a responsible computer in a kind of sustainable way, in the same way as you could maybe to some extent do it with clothing. So you can like have like alternative way of producing them. Yeah. But with computers, um, that, that's really very difficult and very challenging. And so uh, at the moment, there hardly exists any 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 alternative. So it's not just Apple. It's like also this kind of this this contract manufacturers are not just producing for Apple. So it's, it's a, a problem that persists throughout the industry. And there, I don't think that there is a solution at the moment to, to doing this. And definitely, it would, would would involve changing some of the structures of how these technologies are produced. Now, one of the ways in which we're often told these things can change, and this is to a certain extent been true with textile clothing and footwear, is through consumer activism. What place does the consumer have, or the customer, in your book? Hmm. Um, I'm 
Well, in, in, in uh, the consumer comes up in other case studies more than in this one. Okay, okay. Uh, more in things maybe when we're talking about um, issues around so-called piracy, music piracy and file sharing. Yes. Um, so that's another topic that I, that I deal with. Um, well, I guess there, this is probably a real form of, of consumer activism and consumer resistance also towards this kind of corporate world and, and, and an example where the change consumer behavior has like significantly had an impact on the industry, Yeah, I guess. So, yeah, so I think there's, um, I, I, do, I, do, I wouldn't say that like it, it doesn't matter at all what consumers are doing also in regard to technologies. But at the same time, we see Apple like having their new iPhone coming out uh, every two months, and everyone is like, wherever you are in the world, you're basically bombarded with their messages all the time. So I think um, it's really the crime is really that Apple is producing these new devices every every other year or every year, um, and that's where it really starts. And well, yeah, and it is, yeah. We've got the old Leninist problem of overproduction. And yesterday, because my US cell phone had been cut off by my phone company there and I need it back on, I spent an hour and a half on hold to the United States trying to get through to them. And I was the next customer in line, supposedly, for the entire 90 minutes. <laughs> because they had so many people dealing with so many iPhone 6 requests. Wow. This yeah. was the alibi, and I believe the guy who spoke to me. Yeah. Yes, so consumer activism has a place in your account. Hmm. What are, and, and labor activism hmm. does. Yeah. As well, yeah. you mentioned think, SACOM, yes. for example. Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I do think that one of the challenges, and I don't really have an answer to this, but one of the challenges is for us... Um, not to see um, the culture as we consume and produce it uh, in, in countries like the UK as separated from the way it is produced. So I think there needs to be some kind of, of moment of like solidarity or a way of linking workers' struggles here and, yeah. and there. So what, how, can, how can we put there? These experiences are so different from each other to some extent, so it's really a tricky question, how can you establish um, these moments of solidarity that, um, yeah, well, for example, this project I talked about, Make IT Fair, Make It Fair, they have also been, like, their main goal was actually to to raise awareness among uh, among consumers, probably not just as consumers, but like more as, as, as citizens and as potential individuals, that not just through the changing the individual consumption patterns, but through engaging in broader kind of political struggles and demands help to support um, struggles that are actually going on uh, locally. So, yeah. so the idea would be to get people to view themselves in multiple subject positions, mm. not only as consumers but also as workers, mm. and not only as residents of a nation state, but as people who have horizontal loyalties mm. potentially with people in other places. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it is incredibly easy, and for us to just forget about the history of these products, we don't see them when we look at them. Although we we, we use them every day, so um, yeah, I think that's just like bringing that back to the to the to the debate. Also, when we talk about cultural work and media work here, um, that there is something else going on as well, and it's it's, it's like to kind of see the connections.
even this podcast is subject, obviously, to these circumstances, mm. both in terms of the technology that we're recording on and the means whereby mm. the text will be distributed, mm. assuming it all works mm. properly, as I hope. So it's, there's no outside to this, is there, other mm. than an absolute abject refusal. Well, I, I actually, that brings me to a topic I've been thinking about now, increasingly over the summer. Um, and I think it, it's, it's something interesting because it's pointed a little bit at something outside, uh -huh. I think. Okay. And I've been now interested in studying um, worker cooperatives yeah. uh, in the cultural sectors. Um, well, worker cooperatives in principle is that, well, in a very broad definition, it would be organization that are owned and controlled by the workers who work in them. And it's quite interesting because there have been also, like here in London, I've been like seeing several of these worker cooperatives um, popping up in, in, in the cultural sector uh, as a response of, of people who have been um, yeah, living under very, and working under very precarious working conditions as freelancers, um, trying to find a way to um, well, create more security for them, I guess, and, and they're more like this. Yeah. So um, I think the, the idea of worker course is, is really, really interesting because it, on the one hand it has a very kind of transcendent element to it, this idea of companies, businesses in a way, in lack of a, of a better expression, businesses are like owned by, by their workers and controlled by their workers. It's a quite a, yeah. a, has a transcendent kind of potential, but at the same time it's something that is like immediate also to lots of people, so it has like this double thing as an immediate thing to do, but also with a, a longer, long-term trajectory to it, I think. Um, but again, when you come, when we come to, to technology and it's much more difficult to set them up rather than a freelancer who just needs um, a computer as their who just needs this technology exactly, yeah. rather than the ones who, who, who have much more investment to do in terms of equipment. Sure. Could you tell us a little bit without revealing trade secrets of your research about how these cooperatives are functioning? Well, um, the, I mean, obviously, the, the, co the history of the cooperative movement is a, is a really, really long one. And there are, um, at the moment, defined by the International Cooperative Alliance, but also by Cooperatives UK, there are seven main principles of, of co-ops that date back. Some are tra there are traces that go back to these like, uh, earliest co-ops, this Watchdale Society of Equitable Pioneers, which was like a consumer co-op. And they, they what a wonderful name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Rochdale Society of Equitable Pioneers. Yeah. I want to join. <laughs> the RSEP. Yeah. And so they started off with these principles and they still exist in modified forms today. And so they are like um, members' economic participation, which means basically everyone is part participates equally in the in the, in the economics and the profits, so they are still pro making profits to some extent. Then they are like democratically controlled, every every person working in a co-op can be a member of the co-op and therefore also benefit and decide. Um, they are um, also, they, they try to encourage cooperation, so as opposed to competition between businesses, cooperation between co uh, cooperatives, um, they try to be autonomous. So. 
Yeah, some other principles, like also concern for the community is one principle. So again, this idea of, of not harming others and, and, and cooperating. And in practice, it often, uh, I've seen, I've talked to a couple of young people who have just very recently set up co-ops. And before that, they had just been unemployed, working as freelancers, and just decided to like kind of pool their resources, also share their risks, and most importantly, to some extent, also employ each other. Because like all kinds of security benefits today are very much tied to employment. So they are kind of trying to find a new way of employing each other that grants them kind of freedom and autonomy, which they are appreciating as, as freelancers, but at the same time also brings back some some security. So I think it's, it's really, really interesting. But also, um, it's a very contradictory form and a very problematic form to some extent. Um, in terms of the consumer aspects of this, presumably there's an element of guilt that is played on as far as encouraging consciousness. When it comes to the worker aspect, it's a form of identification It's called upon. So far what you've talked about is worker benefits, mm, yes. worker survival, worker sustainability. Are there other elements that can be mobilized here? I'm thinking of gender in particular, since so many of these workers are women, as you mentioned. And secondly, I'm thinking of the environment, given the impact ecologically of the production, distribution, use and afterlife of the gadgetry you mentioned. So first of all, you could maybe expound on the gender issue. In, in regard to... Creating a sense of identification on the part of consumers with workers manufacturing. Okay, so these moving gadgets. away from the co-ops. Yeah, moving away from the co-ops. Okay. Yeah. Um, sorry again. I apologise for jumping around. Um, so first, two questions. The no, first no, one I'm is with you. I was just still right? in, my head, I in was terms of the manufacture of these objects yeah. and their use. Consumer guilt is one element and worker identification. What about gender in particular? And also what about the environment? As other forms of identification or concern that might mobilize consumer opinion to rejig the way in which these technologies are made? Well, um, well obviously, I mean, like, this, the, the way the technologies are made doesn't just have an impact on, on workers and on people. It also has a huge impact um, on the environment. Um, and in, at all stages, really, of the of the of the life cycle, at, at the point of production, at the kind of transport dimension, to all of it, also at the terms of, of of consumption, also the way they are produced makes it very hard to repair them, to exchange parts of it. So I think for uh, many consumers, it can also be a frustrating experience to 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 have been to deal with the. Like it just really shows, like an Apple product so much shows how much power the producer has over how we use it. It's actually really predetermined. I mean, there are some, some yeah. we can go around it, but like it's really the way it's manufactured can be really, really frustrating for, for people. Uh, and yeah, well, so I think there is, it, it is part of a, it can be part of a broader uh, movement to confront and to challenge um, environmental destruction, climate change. So I think that's certainly a part of. And again, it, I think it's, it's really crucial to also 
create this kind of awareness that the cultural sector has this huge environmental impact, which probably often is, hasn't been thought about um, that much. And actually, I'm interested by what you said about playing on customers' frustrations. Mm. That's a very interesting point, that we're delivered these objects as sealed sets mm. in the sense of radios from the 30s onwards. Whereas before radios were easy to get into and rejig, they increasingly became sealed off from interference. And I guess we can see in the free software movement something of that kind being revived, but we really need a free hardware movement, don't we? Oh, yes. Yeah, but again, it's, it's, it's really, really challenging. I know I think about. Um, 3D printers, like the idea of like being able to print hardware and to at some point build build gadgets. But I mean, that's of course like quite far into the future. But the free hardware again is just so much more difficult than the, the software yeah. aspect. And with the 3D printers, there are all kinds of health risks that haven't yet been adequately yeah, so studied. Just, that's, but that's just like as an idea. Yeah. The idea of being able to download devices yeah. in the same way as you would be able to download ideas is, is kind of an interesting idea. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And then manufacture them. And uh, this is also an important transformation in capitalism from uh, mass customization to a return to individual customization with very significant participation by customers in what is generated for them. And of course it also means you can have for doctors, dentists, all kinds of materials that are manufactured to their wishes in order to meet the needs of particular patients and clients. No doubt it's a fascinating thing. And what about the gender aspects of all of this? I wanted to get back to that if I could. So many women are involved in the manufacture of these objects. Could one imagine a feminist response amongst customers and citizens in solidarity with particularly young women who are involved both in manufacture but also in recycling? Yes, yes, I mean, actually, yeah, absolutely, I mean, that's another way of how, how these links also can be established, um, definitely, so it could, could be um, uh, a theme along which solidarity could be organized, I mean, also, again, thinking about um, how unequal um, work in the media and cultural sector is also, like, here, like, uh -huh. um, also, as a, and again, there we come in with the, the work with co-ops again because like um, well, research over the last decade has shown that um, cultural work is not just like precarious or also because it is so precarious it is also highly unequal and privileges like people with certain um, background and also certain lives without caring responsibilities for example so um, here also co-ops come in to, to kind of establish um, work patterns that um, on the one hand, meet the demands for flexibility while at the same time yes. uh, offering some protection and security. So I think um, there's also like a, a, a theme here, and uh, again, it, in very, it plays out in, in very, very different, in very different ways. But so still, it's it's, it's, a, it's definitely a question of, of rights and yeah. You've mentioned the word precarious a couple of times with reference to cultural labour. I wonder if you could tell us 
what that means. Hmm. Well, I think precarious in, in the first instance means um, insecurity at, at multiple levels. Insecurity is in terms of planning, uh, in terms of income, in terms of future job prospects, um, in, in all kinds of ways, I would say. Right. And is cultural work more precarious than other kinds of work? Well, I think uh, it's, it's, it depends on how you define cultural work. I think it probably has been a... But when you look at, to some extent, um, the precarization of work has also become... Has been, has been also described as something like rebuilding the work patterns that traditionally was like reserved for artists or people who were somehow at the margins and like having very alternative ways of working. And so I guess this is infiltrating more and more uh, fields, most like first the traditional cultural sector, but going even beyond that and, and, and all kinds of all kinds of sectors really. Uh, so it's the notion of the end of lifelong employment that you're talking about. The idea that your parents might, for example, have worked for the same employer for 20 or 30 years is now gone. They're no longer working for the same employer. And you don't expect to be working for the same employer for more than a year, in many cases. Is that Yes, yes right? exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is just one dimension probably to, to this kind of, uh, well, yeah, one dimension to this problem. The other problem definitely is um, also the kind of individualization that has come with this kind of new work patterns. So very often it's like individuals competing against individuals. It's also about um, putting the entire um, entire responsibility for surviving, for being able to build a career, for failing or succeeding onto onto the individual. So it's always the individual's like achievement or the individual's fault. And this has again created problems for worker politics and for for for, 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 for workplace politics. Again, coming back to inequality, for example. Um, so I think what is really interesting, and that's why also my interest in working co-ops comes from, uh, is the question now, how can we kind of restore or reinvent a workers' movement and the labor movement, also union politics, in this age of, of precariousness? Yes, union politics. Tell me about that. Um, are there opportunities for trade unions to create a horizontal consciousness and identification? across different workplaces so that the precariously employed can see themselves as one and operate within unions that are not as bureaucratic and connected to corporations as is often said to be the case. Yes, I think so. I think there can be a new, a new form of, of, of organizing unions and of freelance workers to organize. Um, there has been like one of the things that usually is mentioned when it comes to what has challenged and what has challenged the idea of unions in regard to freelancers is that there is no workplace, so there is no physical space where they can meet and where they can actually organize. They work from their homes very often, or from cafes or different places. And there is some interesting debates now also going on about these co-working spaces. So these basically office spaces where freelancers can rent a desk for a day or even just for a couple of hours. And uh, it's quite interesting how some of these co-working spaces are trying to uh, play a larger role, not just offering a desk, but also offering support, offering advice, offering uh, a place where, where um, these freelancers can actually start to think about 
what what is it? What kinds of rights do we want? Because very often for them it was uh, they they don't really want to go back to this kind of lifelong career doing one job, uh, having all the security benefits that come with it. So that's actually very often not the goal. So the goal is not moving back, but inventing something something new. And I think this is the first step, like talking to each other and building. Um, yeah, and, and talking to each other and finding out what it yeah. actually is that we want and how, how it can be achieved. So this could be rehumanizing work. This could be a movement that said that the desire to work part-time should not be necessarily deemed one that is a life that is exploited, mm. but might actually be how all of us should yes. aim to work. Yes, and also to have like several different jobs. It can be like this, what is called like portfolio careers, and which is often problematic for people now working in this because it's very hard for them to earn enough money and to have like security. But at the same time, it can be something that people might want actually to be able to do different things, to be able to work part time. Um, yeah, to be able to work on weekends and not on a Monday. So, well, to finish up, we've just got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to ask you something a little more personal but connected to this. In terms of your own desires for your career, do you see yourself as being one of these people with a portfolio employment history? Or do you want to be a scholar as you are now at a university operating as a professor? Well, no, I, I have no idea, to be honest, like how it's gonna, how this is gonna develop and where it's gonna develop. I mean, I know definitely that academia is a very problematic field as well to work in. Um, it can be still very privileged if you are in the right kind of position, but it can also be um, very problematic. And for most people, it is hugely problematic. Um, so I don't know how it's how, how this is developing for me. So yeah. I have no idea. Um, what I appreciate is like to, to I think like academia to some extent allows you still to do different things so it doesn't like limit you to, to and that's what makes it so attractive and that's why so many people are like competing again for these few kind of privileged positions within it right and one last thing can you tell people the name of your book and where they can find it and also whether they can find other things maybe for free by you on the internet. Yes, so um, the book is called From Corporate to Social Media, Critical Perspectives on Corporate Social Responsibility in Media and Communication Industries. Snappy, yeah, yeah, have, have a drink of water, sit down, relax. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and available for a ridiculously expensive price. Um, and hopefully it will come out again as a paperback in February, a bit cheaper. But in the meantime, if anyone's interested, um, like just send me an email and yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And some of your work is available online, yeah? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Quite a lot of it, actually. Yeah. So, are there good places people could go? I'm thinking of Triple C. Well, yes, for Triple example. C definitely is an open access journal that I'm working with as well. And there's some things published there. Um, yeah. And what's the web address? For oh, that? that's. Um... <laughs> good question. <laughs> No, no, actually, it's just triple C, the triple and triple written, triple. T-R-I-P-L-E yeah, C, C dot A-T. Triple C dot A-T. Marisol, thank you so much. Thank you. I wonder if when you've done some more work with the cooperatives, assuming that you take that route, 
that you'll come back into the pod and share with us some of that. Thank you again. Thank you.